0: All right, after a rare week off, we are back in the Fitz News studios here for another edition of The Week in Review, our second since we returned from Walterboro, South Carolina, covering South Carolina's trial of the century, the double homicide trial of convicted killer, not accused killer anymore, convicted killer Alec Murdoch. We'll have a little bit more information on Murdoch's situation here in this upcoming episode. But we're going to dive right into the big story this week, and that's the story of Stephen Smith, a 2015 homicide that has been brought back to life in a big way by the big Netflix documentary, Reviving Public Interest, and focus on the death of Stephen Smith and the investigation into his murder. We're going to dive into that in a big way in this episode. We've also got another true crime story here in South Carolina, the details of which are just going to blow your mind, folks. I'm talking about... The Rose Petal Saga up in Greenville, South Carolina. The Rose Petal Murder, rather. The savage killing of 41-year-old Christina Parcell up there in a neighborhood, suburban neighborhood outside of Greer. We're going to dive into that, give you all the details, including some. You're going to want to probably have to take a shower after you hear, folks. It's rough stuff. But we're going to dive into that in detail. And beyond that, getting back into politics in a big way here at Fitz News. Remember, we started as a political news site. A lot of people don't know that. We've been covering so much crime in courts lately, you know, but we dove back into politics in a huge way this week as we continue to get ramped up for the 2024 first in the South presidential primary. In fact, first in the country if you're a Democrat. If you're a Republican, it's first in the South. If you're a Democrat, first in the country. But Fitz News, we've been covering those races from the beginning, continuing to update our readers on the very latest developments there. So stay tuned for some big political updates at the end of this segment as well. we got all that and more coming your way on the week in review. All right, so Stephen Smith, where to even start with the Stephen Smith story after the metric ton of Stephen Smith related news that broke this week. Stephen Smith's name all over the national news, and that's a good thing, people. This is an unsolved murder mystery, one that took place on July 8, 2015, involving a 19-year-old young man from Hampton, South Carolina, Stephen Smith, a friend of one of the Murdoch boys, Buster Murdoch, they both went to high school together. Uh, Smith found dead in the middle of Sandy Run Road in Hampton County. His body dumped in the middle of the road, misclassified initially as a vehicular hit and run by a forensic pathologist from the Medical University of South Carolina by the name of Erin Presnell. We're going to talk about her autopsy in some detail here in a minute. But this story has been linked to the Murdochs, obviously, by the connections between Stephen Smith and Buster Murdoch, the surviving son. Of convicted killer Alec Murdoch. But there were other connections to the Murdoch family that were revealed in the course of the investigation into Stephen Smith's death. And over the course of the past week, this news outlet has been publishing various investigative case files that we have relied upon in our investigation of Smith's death over the last few years. And I wanted to put these documents into the public bloodstream for a couple of reasons. Number one, obviously they're important public records. People should have a right to see them. They should be able to look at what we're looking at as we try to put this puzzle together. And so number one, we felt we had an obligation to put this material on the bloodstream. There's so many people who are coming at this case from angles, who have agendas, who are, you know, one outcome versus another outcome. The only outcome we're interested in is the truth. I don't care if it's Colonel Mustard in the conservatory with the wrench or Miss Scarlett in the library with the candlestick. It It doesn't matter to us. Our goal is to find justice. By the way, that's a, that's a clue reference in case you're not a fan of the board game slash movie. But it, to us, it doesn't matter. What matters is finding out who did it. Again, the agendas, the angles, that, that, that's not our bag. We just want to know who did it, how it happened. And, and I think the most important question here, was it covered up? And if so, how and why? Why is always the biggest question, isn't it? Why? But as we've dug into this story, Those documents have told quite a story. So we started telling that story again this week by releasing some of those documents. But there was also some big news from Sandy Smith's new attorney, Eric Bland, the guy who's been on this show before. We've had Eric and his law partner, Ronnie Richter, on this show before. They are now representing Sandy Smith, the mother of Stephen Smith. And they held a big press conference at the beginning of this week, which really launched the big week of Stephen Smith news, in which they announced that they would be petitioning for the exhumation of Stephen Smith's body for the purpose of conducting an independent uh, review of that controversial autopsy from 2015. So the big thing is, if there was any doubt before, there's no doubt now, this is a homicide investigation, it's a murder investigation. Again, there was a lot of debate on social media about the terms and about whatever, but what happened this week is significant. You, know, you got the chief of the state law enforcement division, Mark Keel, publicly stating, or at least through Sandy Smith's attorney, Eric Bland, this is a murder investigation. And I think the background of that conversation was that basically the, the cops are telling Sandy Smith and her lawyers, hey, you don't need to dig your son up. We, we're there. We, we don't need any more evidence that this was misclassified. This, this was a murder. And I, and I do agree that anybody who looked at that, that report, which we published this week. By the way, go to Fitznews.com. Don't, don't take my word on any of this. We put all the documents up there on Fitznews.com this week. But you read that report; it's abundantly clear every highway patrol trooper at that scene didn't think this was a vehicular strike. The coroner for Hampton County didn't agree with the forensic pathologist uh, autopsy conclusion. She so got all the police officers, all the, the all the the coroner. So this is not a this is not a hit and run. But because she classified it as such it shut down inquiries. SLED was never called upon to open a criminal investigation. They provided some crime scene assistance. But as they said in a statement that was released this week in the aftermath of all this publicity, we did not open an investigation no one one asked us to. This was classified as a hit and run. It went to the state highway patrol. And I got to be honest, I don't think they did a great job. But based on what they were dealt, the hand they were dealt, I thought they did a pretty good job of trying to push this thing down the road. Now, should they have referred it to SLED earlier? Yes, absolutely. I think it's abundantly clear when you read that document and read our coverage of those case files, there's absolutely no doubt that this was a homicide from the beginning. I'm talking about where Stephen Smith's body was found in the road. I'm talking about the types of wounds he sustained. I'm talking about the absolute and total lack of any vehicle debris. In fact, his shoes were still on. If you're hit by a car, you get your shoes knocked off, people. Especially loose, fitting shoes, no laces undone, no laces. There's no way that this was a hit and run. None of the evidence on the scene suggests that. No one said this except Aaron Presnell, the forensic pathologist. And the only reason she said it, according to her own acknowledgement, was that his body was found in the road. Okay. And based on that, an entire... Murder investigation that should have happened never happened, people. Never happened. Instead, it was a, a vehicular homicide probe that wound up going nowhere. But in late June of 2021, in the aftermath of the double homicide of Paul Murdoch and Maggie Murdoch at the Moselle hunting property owned by the Murdoch family, SLED opened, not reopened, but they opened a homicide investigation, a murder probe, into the death of Stephen Smith. Now, so much conversation in the past week about what prompted them to do that, and SLED finally acknowledged in their statement this week something we've been reporting from the beginning, which is that the investigation was opened not by any evidence or any information obtained from Mazel from the murder scene, or from the Murdoch property there, but simply the fact that they obtained this Highway Patrol report that we published. In fact, When we wrote about it this week, I know this is the report that launched that investigation. It's not any other piece of evidence or information. It was the fact that they obtained this report and very clearly saw they were dealing with a body dumped in the middle of the road, not a hit and run. Now, this investigation has taken a lot of twists and turns, and it's continuing to take a lot of twists and turns. And a big development this week was a statement from Buster Murdoch, who has been linked to this crime. Buster Murdoch issued a statement earlier this week categorically denying any involvement. He called them vicious rumors. He expressed his sympathy to the Smith family, said, short paraphrasing, I'm not a killer. I didn't, nothing to do with this. Now, a lot of folks on social media don't believe that. They don't believe Buster because they see the Murdoch name all over this report. But as of this writing... As I pointed out on many occasions, there's nothing to suggest Buster Murdoch or Paul Murdoch or any other Murdoch, for that matter, was directly involved in Smith's killing. Now, I've been trying for a long time to get law enforcement and prosecutorial sources to come out and say this and said that, which is, which is interesting. I understand they don't want to exclude or include anyone preemptively. But again, this is the same agency that made it pretty clear within 48 hours of the Moselle homicide— that Alec Murdoch was their primary suspect, their person of interest, we called it, but they made it clear they knew who it was at the beginning. In fact, we've talked to law enforcement officers who said they knew within five minutes of being on that scene that Alec Murdoch was guilty of killing his wife and son. But on the Buster Murdoch case, again, we're still almost eight years now out, but nobody's exonerating Buster Murdoch at this point. In fact, there was a lot of dispute whether or not that statement that Buster put out We'd heard rumors that it had been sent to the law enforcement prior to being released and that they had approved it. That, that's apparently not true. Apparently it was sent to them just before it was sent out. But that's a part of this mystery. Did Buster have any involvement? He's adamant that he didn't. A lot of folks seem to think he did. A lot of folks are pushing that theory. As of this writing, we have seen nothing to indicate any involvement from Buster Murdoch or any other Murdoch directly in this crime, but there are connections that cannot be ignored, folks. And I want to talk quickly about a couple of those. One of them is an individual by the name of Cash Patel, who we know spent a lot of time with Stephen Smith prior to his death, the weekend prior to his death, several days prior to his death. Cash Patel is a convenience store manager, I guess we would call him. Family owns it down there in Hampton. And if his name sounds familiar in this story, it should Because Cash Patel was referenced by Russell Lafitte, Alec Murdoch's accomplice in these financial crimes, a guy who's already been convicted of six counts of fraud at the federal level, as somebody that he and Murdoch would go to to cash checks after hours. Lafitte said in the deposition, if we needed a cash check for $1,000 here or there, and it's 10 o'clock at night, banks not open, we would call Cash and Cash would do it. And we know that Stephen Smith and Cash Patel were close because that's what Stephen Smith's mother, Sandy Smith, told investigators in an interview in late July of 2015, right after this murder took place. What's the connection there? Again, we don't know. you got a key cog, some would argue, in Murdoch's check cashing scheme, which we have yet to fully uncover, those financial crimes. We heard a lot about them at the murder trial, but those, those trials are still upcoming, folks. But there are other Murdoch connections Randy Murdoch's name mentioned multiple times in the report. Other Murdoch firm attorneys referenced in this report. And they're referenced in the context of either filing suit against or repping individuals who claim to have hit a deer. That's right, hit a deer on Sandy Run Road on the night Stephen Smith was murdered. And according to our sources, those individuals referenced in the report are the top suspects at this moment in the death of Stephen Smith. Do I buy that? At this point, you know, folks, where do you, who do you trust? And what, I don't know. We've dug on this story so hard and for so long. And it seems like every time we get to a point of maybe breaking through, like this week, thinking we would maybe get some sense of whether Buster Murdoch and the late Paul Murdoch would be officially excluded from this inquiry. No. No. They're not officially excluded. Nobody's officially excluded or included at this point. But those Murdoch connections are all over that report. And again, you can check it out at Fitznews.com. But there's one more angle that we need to talk about as it relates to the Stephen Smith murder investigation, because this is important. And during their press conference earlier this week, Eric Bland and his team, a comment was made by Eric Bland about how they were going to dig into Stephen Smith's communications into his messages, into his electronic devices, into the communications that he was having leading up to his death. Well, we have done some of that already. And it's not pretty. There are some details of Stephen Smith's life that are going to be difficult to talk about. And they're going to be difficult to reconcile with, again, where some want the truth to go in this case. But we're going to have to discuss those things. And so far, this news outlet has referred to those details simply as high-risk behavior. And we've left it at that. Because again, we don't want to drag a family through something like this. And But when we're talking about leaving no stone unturned, and I credit Eric Bland and Ronnie Richter and their team for wanting to look at these communications, because they are important. But there was no shortage of individuals, folks, with a potential motive in this case. And a lot of them have no connection to the Murdoch family. Some of them might. We're just looking into that black book. But as I noted, and I've repeated this quote several times, is that everyone assumed that this was the Murdochs, that this was a Murdoch murder. But as my sources down in Hampton have consistently said, there were a lot of names in Stephen Smith's little black book, and we're going to have to dig into those. We're going to have to look at the contents of that iPad that Stephen Smith was using in the weeks leading up to his death, which incidentally was apparently stolen by some investigators in connection with the big boat crash case. If Again, just another layer of how all of these cases involving the Murdochs are, are connected. Again, that's another layer of the story, but This is the ultimate unsolved mystery, people. It is the ultimate unsolved mystery here in South Carolina, a state that clearly has had institutional failures at every step along the way. And I I do want to say something about the SLED investigation here. When SLED opened the investigation into Stephen Smith's death back in June June of 2021 after the Murdoch murders at Mazzell, it was very optimistic as to where that investigation was going, but I'm concerned now. I, I'm legitimately concerned. In fact, I think unless somebody steps up who was a witness to what happened to Stephen Smith, I don't know that we're going to be able to secure a conviction here. I really don't. First of all, this is a crime that, again, is almost eight years old. Clearly, there's a, no shortage of potential suspects. There's Murdoch involvement that appears to be, based on what, what we've uncovered, tangential, that's what's driving it. That's the oxygen that's elevating this and the Netflix show. I don't know where it goes. But here's your your promise from Fitz News. We're going to follow it wherever it goes. Whether that leads down a Murdoch rabbit hole, whether that goes into another suspect, whether it's one of these names on this, again, secretive iPad that's out there, we're going to follow it. We're going to go where it leads. And I'm going to also trust... Eric Bland and his team to do the same because I do think they just want answers for Sandy Smith. And I, I credit Eric Bland on that. I think he wants answers for Sandy Smith. And you also have to credit the man for, I mean, talk about blowing this story up. Some have argued whether or not what they released this week was news or not. The fact that there's a murder investigation, well, there's no debate. It was news. When you're on Anderson Cooper, people, it's news. Okay. So this huge elevation of publicity on the case. And as I said at the beginning, that's a good thing. But wherever the Stephen Smith case leads, and I want, I want everyone to know this, we've got to be ready for it to lead to some troubling places, and we've got to be able to set aside our blinders, our preconceptions, and any agendas and f- focus solely and squarely on where the facts take us. That's what Fist News has done on this case from the beginning. That's why we released all these documents this week. And that's what we will continue to do as we participate in the investigation to find out the truth of what happened to Stephen Smith. All right, a mystery wrapped inside a riddle, inside an enigma. That was Oliver Stone in the screenplay for JFK, the movie about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And one day we're going to have a true crime story that doesn't feel like that, but it is not the rose petal murder, is it, Jen
1: Wood? It is absolutely not the rose petal murder.
0: This story has incredible layers to it, and I want to start at the beginning. Uh, 10 a.m., October 13, 2021, the Canebrake neighborhood in Greer, South Carolina, outside Greenville, the most populous city in the upstate of South Carolina. On that date, at that time, 41-year-old veterinary technician Christina Parcell brutally murdered. And when we say brutally, this is, Jen, it's one of the worst crime scenes you and I have ever encountered is that correct i
1: that's yeah it is uh it was a vicious murder
0: yeah greenville county sheriff hobart lewis held a press conference when they were announcing the arrest of the prime suspect in this and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute but 31 sharp force stab wounds in this case to the head and neck and just horrific and not only that jen we had ritualistic staging of this crime scene we had a a body that was dragged to a front room in this home. And rose petals, well, depending on which story you believe, one story rose petals sprinkled around her. The other story is that there was a bouquet of roses that was somehow uh, hit during a scuffle. Either way, it, it has been christened the rose petal murder because rose petals were found at the scene. But, Jen, pulling this lens back a little bit, some of the characters in this story just defy comprehension, don't they?
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it could be a little bit hard to follow, but I mean, for people that have been following all the characters in the Murdoch case, they'll be they'll be able to keep up. Um, so Christina had a young daughter. We aren't going to give any details about her with a man named John Mello. John is currently 62 years old. Um, so that is one name you need to remember when looking at this case. And her fiance, who's the one that called 911 that morning and reported that he had found her body, his name is Bradley Post. Bradley is, I believe, 67 years old, if I remember correctly. And then we go into the murder suspect that was arrested, which is a whole different character. And at first, not many were sure how this, this man was tied to Christina Parcell. His name is Zachary Hughes. He is um, a young man. That's I'm gonna look at my notes so I make sure I get his name right. Zachary uh, David
0: Hughes. Da,
1: yep, Zachary David Hughes. 31 um, he, now, isn't he? Yeah, he is 31 now. And he is a concert pianist who was living in the Greenville area. So those are the three names that right now we're aware of that could and get confusing
0: concert not just any concert pianist jen would juilliard school
1: classically trained i mean this is one of the best music schools in the world right he i mean he i've seen his performances online he he was extremely talented he went to juilliard um after high school um 2012 he was one of the seven percent of people accepted into their piano section of their school
0: And we're going to dig into more about him in a minute, but let's go into some of these. You you mentioned Bradley Post, the individual Mm -hmm. who called 911 in the aftermath of this horrific discovery of uh, Parcell's body, but he's been charged
1: in connection with this
0: case too, hadn't he? Let's walk us through that.
1: So just a little after a week after Christina's body was found in Green, in the Greenville area, it's actually Greer, um, Z- Bradley Post was arrested and charged with five counts of some very disturbing crime. So I think when that happened, a lot of people were, you know, in the area were thinking, well, obviously Bradley Post is, you know, eventually going to be charged with a homicide. So I, I think it, it, the charges, first of all, were horrific that he was charged with. And, you know, being so close, clo- the arrest being so close to the homicide. Seven was, days after. Right. Just seven days after he was arrested on October 19th. Hmm. Um, six days so, after. Yeah. yeah. Six days. So he was arrested in connection with a child pornography investigation and it was related to evidence that they found at the murder scene.
0: USBs. There were multiple computer files and USB drives, thumb drives. There was also envelopes of cash in Christina Parcell's purse that were found at the crime scene. Drugs found at the crime scene as well. But Jen, we started to see this case take an ominous turn in the early part of, of last year, 2022. February, we saw a lawsuit filed by a friend of the daughter of, of Parcell and, and John Mello, uh, a Jane Doe who who alleged, again being subjected to potential child sexual assault, but also certainly child pornography, and then a right. few months later, the guardian for Parcell's daughter and Mello's daughter filed her own case, alleging yep. similar uh, p- potential sex abuse, but certainly child pornography. So all of a sudden, Jen, you know, you had, like you said, this aftermath where there was fear in the community. There was, you know, this perception that, okay, they've got their guy maybe, but you know, this awful crime and this victim who was such a loving mother and a, a vet tech who cared for animals. All of a sudden this, this myth starts to get shattered with these civil suits. Is that correct?
1: Yep. The civil suits and then the five counts of sexual exploitation of a minor and one count of sexual exploitation of a minor in the third degree. So there were five counts in the first degree, one count in the third degree, and then one count of third degree criminal sexual conduct with a minor and one count of buggery. So the multiple charges filed against Bradley Post, criminal charges, and then add to those the civil lawsuits and people were, their eyes were bugging open.
0: But it got worse, didn't it?
1: Yeah, did not it got get worse. Better.
0: So you can't imagine it getting worse, but it did. And let's go back to that last chart you were talking about, buggery. Now, in most states, if there are sexual assaults committed against animals, because let's let's be honest, an animal cannot give its consent. So right. any any sexual activity of that nature is it, it's an assault. I mean, let's call it what it is. But most states, you have anti-bestiality laws. But in right. South Carolina, there is no specific anti-bestiality statute. There's simply buggery, which is a catch-all, which could include any manner of things, not not just bestiality, but you know potentially sexual conduct between one person and another. But in this case, the buggery charge, we've been able to confirm it is linked to sexual activity with animals and not just Bradley Post but the late Christina Parcel, both of right. them implicated in in this, uh, again, they call it abominable in the statute. I, I agree with that. I mean, just horrific. And Jen, she There's, wasn't just a vet tech, was she? She fostered some of these animals, didn't she?
1: Yeah. So some of the neighbors had reached out and said that, you know, when she was living in the house on Canebrake where her body was found, she would often bring dogs home to foster them. And they said they thought it was a little weird because typically when you foster a dog, you you know foster them for an extended period of time but she would only keep Several the dogs weeks. right she would only keep the dogs for a day or two which they i mean they found a little odd at the time and then more so after information started coming out
0: now at this point though we don't have any information that these graphic streams cross the the child animal thing so far we're we're hearing those are separate, but, but still, I mean, it's, I mean, it's almost like you got to take a shower after digesting this. information. I,
1: yeah. I mean, I made the mistake of Googling buggery because I had never heard, honestly never heard, heard that term before. I, I don't recommend doing it because the results that you get are not what you want to see on your computer.
0: Yeah, we were googling a lot of stuff in preparation for our reports on this this past week. We were googling the buggery statute. We were also looking at the various bestiality laws around the country. And our director, of special projects, Dylan jo- Dylan Nolan, made the nice joke that I should start throwing some peanut butter Google searches in there just to mix things up. I'm glad I didn't do that because I'm that, that would likely mean I wouldn't be here on the show this week if I'd thrown <laughs> that in the Google search. But um, but Jen, I mean how does the story where does it i mean here's what i'm trying to understand and we had a quote from one of the sources that's been giving us some of the best information on this story um and the quote was to the effect of you know i just wish that this guy had gotten the other the fiancee too. almost like give this guy a medal for right for taking this this woman out so how do you how does this change the prosecutorial calculus of
1: this so I, I mean i think to 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 truly get into that, we need to look at who Zachary Hughes is and how, I mean, he seemingly has no ties to Christina Parcell. So, so Zachary Hughes, the musician. Um, so let's back to, back to the three people and that's names come up off most often in this case. The first one I mentioned is John Mello and John Mello was also arrested just a week after Christina Parcell was murdered. Um, He was arrested when he flew back in from Italy for child custodial interference. So he had taken their young daughter to Italy, basically fleeing the country with her. So during the course of the investigation, um, they had obtained Zachary Hughes's phone and were able, they didn't have the passcode, but they were able to get some of the contents off of the phone and they found various communications between um, Zachary Hughes and John Mello. So it sounds like what they've determined is that John Mello had hired Zachary Hughes to do odd work, you know, odd jobs around the house for him. And that's how they knew each other. So John uh, Mello is also a music producer. So I wondered, you know, in that small community of Greer, if that's how their paths had crossed. But they could only get some of the information from Christina's or from Zachary Hughes's phone. So they um, filed a motion to compel the court to you know basically ask the court to compel Zachary Hughes to provide his cell phone password that motion the order was granted in the in favor of the prosecution and they have compelled Zach to provide his six digit passcode to his phone to as far to my knowledge, he has not done so yet. He no, is, he you know, sitting right, he has not been, he's, he's under he's a not, court
0: order to do it,
1: right? He's under a court order, but he was arrested and wasn't given bond, so he's already sitting in a jail cell. I'm not sure what else they can do to him to make him give up that passcode. Um, but they, I mean, they did have enough evidence to arrest him. But that relationship between John Mello and Zachary Hughes, I think, is what they believe ties Zachary Hughes to Christina Parcell.
0: When in some of those messages, we're led to believe, or we don't, we're don't, we not led to believe, it seems pretty clear, they're speaking in code. He asks him right. about, you know, how did your music research go? And then Hughes responds to Mello, good, I'll, I'll tell you about it in person. Right. So, and that was the day of the murder. Um, right. So it seems as though there's some speaking in code. And according to Prosecutor Walt Wilkins, who has given a lot of information in this case in open court, there are more than seventeen hundred WhatsApp messages that they're trying to get their hands on from Zach Hughes's phone, in the hopes of gaining more insight into that communication. So obviously, that's a big potential development in this case moving forward. Right along with potentially additional charges uh, related to the child porn component and the bestiality component, because Jen Wood, we know who were who who were in these pictures, but there are some folks who took these pictures. Yet to be identified. Is that correct?
1: Right. The folks taking the pictures and anybody to whom the pictures or videos were distributed to. So, I mean, it sounds to me like there is a much bigger investigation going on up in Greenville County. Um, And I I wouldn't be surprised if we start hearing of additional arrests and charges.
0: When this story is starting to hit, hit the national radar, we know that Fox News was up in Greer this past week. Doing right. interviews, starting to dig on this story. It's going to be another circus like the Murdochs. Jen, let me ask you this, though. As we pull our lens back looking at, at at the Rose Petal murder and this attendant child pornography bestiality investigation, as we pull that lens back, this is the exact same area as the Thornblade scandal in which we had a number of high school students literally uh-huh. used for sex. And, and again, no charges were brought in that case because apparently everybody was of the age of consent. Right. Um, but you had that, you have Rockstar Cheer. I mean, this is the city where Scott Foster, uh, right. whose August suicide literally was the 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 impetus for the Cheer Incorporated scandal, which we've covered. You've done amazing work on this, Jen. Uh, but Scott Foster's suicide and the allegations that he was sexually assaulting uh, numerous minor athletes Mm -hmm. as as his role as a a cheer gym owner. That's right in this neighborhood too. All of this stuff,
1: right. Yeah. Greer is a tiny, you know, small suburb right outside of Greenville, South Carolina. Um, It's populations just over 30,000 people. It is not a, I mean, it's not a huge city. It's a, it's a smaller community. Mm -hmm. And for that, that number of ongoing child sex abuse investigations to be kind of popping up in such a short time frame to me i think is concerning and i i hope that authorities are looking at potential ties between all of these individuals
0: well i hope so too right now we know the greenville county sheriff's office is the lead investigative agency mm-hmm. on these cases obviously 13th circuit solicitor walt wilkins will be conducting the trial of zachary hughes which we're expecting to take place in early 2024 before we go jen just want to point point out the case against hughes is pretty strong they've got i think it's dna right i think it's
1: i think it's strong um but you know the the victims aren't overly i mean sympathetic it's going to be an interesting case legally um because i think you know you look at what Christina and her fiance were into and, you know, her, the father of her child taking her kid to Italy, you know, I, mean, I, as a mom to me, I'm like, well, I'm not entirely like, I just, it's, it's, it's a hard case to look at because you wonder, you know, decisions were made that you, I mean, I'm not entirely sure I wouldn't have made some of the same decisions. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, no, it is. It's a, It's going to be a, it's going to, like we said, it's got layers beyond that. Yeah. Belief, and no, and we're just, no
1: charges have been filed against John Mello relating to the homicide. Um, just to make sure people are clear on that. To date, no charges have been filed. The only charge that's been filed against him was the um, custodial inf- interference charges.
0: But he's clearly a person of interest in connection with this ongoing investigation.
1: Clearly. Yeah. Right. But I mean, obviously, there's some more layers.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, count on us to continue to dig into this case. Jen Wood, I want to thank you for coming on and talking about this story. You've been digging deep on it. We published our first report on the Rose Petal murder just last week, had a follow up this week. We've got a big story coming Monday. Jen Wood's been doing a deep dive into Zach Hughes, the accused killer in this case. So be on the lookout for that next week. Jen Wood, thank you for coming on. Keep it tuned to Fitz News for the very latest on this story. All right, our last segment today, I'm going to talk about a series that we just launched on Fitz News last week. It's our political stock index. And if you are interested in following the 2024 presidential campaign, you better come to South Carolina, people. This is where it happens. 2016, Donald Trump won the White House based in no small part on his performance here in early voting South Carolina. Four years later, Joe Biden was dead in the water until a big victory in first in the South South Carolina. It's a state that picks presidents, people, on the Republican side, on the Democratic side. Fitz News has been covering that process for years. We're going to be your go-to source on it here. And that political stock index, a key indicator. Who's up? Who's down? you got to check that out to find out. we got a big update this week looking at the 2024 Republican field. Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley, South Carolina's own. We gave her a lot of love this past week. She did some good work on the issue of entitlements. We talked about that extensively on our news outlet. You can check that coverage out under the 2024 tab on fistnews.com. But if you haven't looked at it yet, visit that political stock index. We don't just focus on the national candidates, though. This is very important. We focus on the state leaders, those movers and shakers who are vying to impact public policy here in South Carolina. We had some big developments on that case this week. The state's comptroller general, Richard Ekstrom, guy has held this office for 20 years. He's weathered numerous scandals. One finally got him this week, folks. A three point five billion dollar hole in the budget, an accounting error. How do you have an accounting error of three and a half billion dollars? I mean even at the federal level, that would be huge, but at the state level it's it's just gargantuan. A huge embarrassment for the state of South Carolina, their top accountant missing three and a half billion dollars. So Richard Ekstrom, 74 years old, the state's top accountant resigned his office this past week. Fitznews covered that, and we've got an exclusive report up on who might follow him in office, a former state representative. We've got a report on that on our site as well, and both of those individuals are referenced in that Palmetto Political Stock Index. Fitznews is your go-to source, people, for First in the South news. We're going to be looking forward as this process ramps up. We've got a couple big events coming up in the next few months as these, not only the candidates, but the interest pushing them and pulling their strings they start coming to South Carolina, vying for those critical early votes. South Carolina is where it's at, people. Again, if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, this is the state that picks presidents. And Fitz News is the site that covers it closer than anybody. All right, that is a wrap for this week's edition of the Week in Review. Thank you all for tuning in. I want to thank Jen Wood for joining us on that segment on the rose petal murder. Be on the lookout for her big report early this coming week on Zach Hughes, the suspect, the accused killer, actually, in that case. Be on the lookout for Jen Wood's report. She's been doing a lot of work on that. Also be on the lookout next week, an issue our audience is intimately familiar with, judicial reform here in South Carolina, the way that judges are selected. uh, Attorney General Alan Wilson has got a big coalition. They're holding a press conference early next week on the issue of judicial reform. Fitz News will be there. We've been covering this issue already on the site, but look for us to file an updated report on that. We've also got... A trip back to Walterboro, folks. We're going to be interviewing some folks as part of our Murdoch trial retrospective coverage, talking to some of the first responders who were on the scene at Moselle in the immediate aftermath of that brutal homicide, the trial of the century, the crime of the century in South Carolina. We're going to talk to some of the folks who saw it first. All that and much more will be headed your way on next week's edition. But for now, thanks for tuning in. We will catch you next time.